3: We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform Zencaster has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to The Archaeology Podcast Network.
0: This is the Serum Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 225 for November 3rd, 2021. Your host today is Dr. Bill White. On today's show, Bill and friends bring on Eric Olson to talk about archaeology certificates and education at the community college level.
4: Okay, welcome everyone to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 225. For October, well, it's October 24th, and it'll come out next week, 2021. I am not the normal host, Chris Webster. I'm one of the that I'm I'm just usually a contributor, one of the sidekicks. I'm like the Flavor Flav that's usually just doing the accents <laughs> in the background, not the real main host. But Chris Webster's too busy watching Formula One, which is absolutely fascinating because I. I like driving, but I've never really thought about paying money to watch other people drive. But so Chris will have to tell us a little bit more about his adventures watching Formula One. But we've got a full full show today for the first time in a long time. I'm Bill White and I'm actually right now in Aarhus, Denmark. I'm joined with Heather in California. Hi everyone. We've got Doug in Scotland. Hey everyone. Andrew, also in California. Hey, everybody. It's nice to be back. And we have a special guest, Eric Olson in Ohio. Hello, hello. All right. We've all joined each other today to talk a little bit about the college experience. If you have been listening to the other, you know, 200 and something episodes of this, you find out that we constantly talk about how cultural resource management education is in a Uh, I don't know, maybe a a serviceable situation, maybe not so great of a situation, but it's a perennial topic that comes up on this channel. However, we haven't really talked about the community college experience. Now, I didn't know this, but uh, Heather has some experience in going to the community college and and learning about archaeology. But our guest here, Eric, is a professor at a community college. So please, Eric, take it away.
3: Yeah, so I teach at Cuyahoga Community College. I've talked about this, I think, in a couple episodes over in the ArcheoTech podcast with Chris and Paul. We usually call it Tri-C for short because it's three C's. Right now, I'm technically an adjunct, but I'm like the on-deck adjunct. I always get the first dibs of classes right now, and I do a lot of grants, and I try to do grants and research and contract archaeology to bring it back to the students where I can. But my experience, I've been teaching there since 2018, and most of it has been online. So even before COVID, I had a lot of experience teaching online. It was very much a shock for me when I first started teaching archaeology at Tri-C, and it was online. And I'm like, oh, how am I supposed to teach this this class that's very much like a physical, tangible class? Like I can't show them artifacts. And in an online class. Like, how am I going to get around that? And so it's been interesting. I've really enjoyed working at Tri-C. I really enjoy the students that I get to work with, but it is definitely, it's, it's a completely different experience teaching at a community college than it is at a four-year school because there's no obligation to do research. There's no expectation of publish or perish. It's all about teaching and it's teaching oriented. So it's about delivering results for students in more of a job readiness and making sure that you teach the classes aspect as opposed to serving on committees and doing like faculty senate and all that kind of stuff which I have done in the past but that sort of academic side of things seems a little different. I hope that was a good enough intro.
4: No, that was absolutely excellent. But what you're explaining to me it differs a lot from our experience. I think several of us were TAs in college. Were you were you also a um, TA or a graduate student assistant on classes? When you were in college?
3: So I wasn't my. To give you a little, I guess, background on me, I went to the University of Akron because I'll probably end up talking about them because they're, I mean, I live about 20 minutes from their campus and Tri C is about 30 minutes from Akron. And I got my bachelor's there. Then I went off to Ball State as a graduate student. I was a graduate assistant on a National Science Foundation Hopewell project. So we looked at a bunch of artifacts in museum collections. So I didn't actually have any experience teaching until I got back from grad school, started a nonprofit here in Northeast Ohio, got experience. So I wouldn't really say that the nonprofit I started was a CRM firm, but it kind of overlaps a lot of the functions that a CRM firm might do without intentionally trying to make a profit because it's a nonprofit. And through that, I was able to start teaching at Akron. And then from there, I got the the teaching job at, at Tri-C. So I don't really have that sort of graduate teaching assistant experience. But I did, obviously, my cohort had TAs and they always seemed miserable, just like grading stuff all the time. <laughs> and uh, well, I remember one of them, their job, their first task as a TA was to go into someone's office. And this was someone who was like close to retirement. So like they were, I think, in their 70s at the time, maybe in their early 80s and they had all these paper records that they had never gone through and fixed you know how like professors are and it's just like instead of buying a book or buying a chapter of a book they'll just go to the the department copier and print off the 30 page document and then like (laughs) annotate it and then put it in a middle (laughs) envelope and then file it away in a filing cabinet so their first task was like got to sort all this because i use it for class Oh my gosh! Yeah. Well, I'm not like that.
4: Thank goodness my my TAs don't have to do that kind of thing. But the reason I asked that is because of exactly what you're saying that it doesn't seem like you know the TA experience could have prepared you. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, it seems like you're probably better off not having been a TA in a university because you were kind of a just an open book that could create your own thing once you got teaching. You know, it, of course, this last year, I'll just tell you this right now is not normal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you will not be teaching in a pandemic hopefully unless you live to be like 130 years old again. So we're hoping that you will be able to teach more like how you would like to see things taught. But, you know, I just wanted to ask how that compares to the TA experience because I find as a professor it's it's a lot different to be the actual lead instructor of a class than to be a TA. I would just say that um,
2: I, I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree, Bill, and I would say that the <laughs> TA experience was vital, you know, for for me. And I think, you know, for people listening in, if they want to go towards this professorial, you know, route or whatever, I think I think like you want to be a TA as much and as often as you possibly can, you know, because it gets you used to talking in front of an audience. It gets you used to presenting things. And I used to actually, uh, my professors who I worked for were really nice and I would steal their class notes. They would allow me to. They were like, you know, hey, you can use these these notes. And it wasn't like I just read off them, but it was a nice basis for later. But I came in really knowing that I wanted to do this thing, you know, so I was there to kind of siphon any
4: knowledge I could. Because that's maybe where we differ a little bit.
1: <laughs> right. Well, I, th- I, think, I think part of it might just be whoever you're, whoever you were TAing for, because like Eric said, you know, you have a lot of professors that actually, you know, sometimes they'd rather just hold people back and just have them do their side work, you know, and and they don't want to encourage or really train newer professors to come up in the ranks or to at least get their feet wet as a graduate student and figure out whether or not this is something they want to do. And so I think it just depends on the personality and and the the agenda of the professor that somebody is TAing for, so you know, Andrew had a good opportunity. Maybe Eric's yes. cohorts didn't. <laughs> you know, for me, <laughs> right. uh for, for me, you know, I had a little a short stint before I went into CRM, where I was teaching as an adjunct in several different community colleges, at, and at one four year institution. And I already had a great respect for community college because I came through community college and had that experience. I got lucky enough. I had a great experience. Uh, it was at Park College where Andrew is. But I noticed that the difference in the ability or the focus on teaching, on developing your craft as a teacher in the community college was so different than it is just for the reason that Eric had said, is that the focus is different. And so when you go to a community college, you have people that are really dedicated to teaching, Hopefully. Right. And but I think you have a a potential of having more of them that are really said, Okay, you know what? How am I going to get this to a point where the information where the students are really going to grow? They're going to understand it. They're going to be able to use it in a practical way. How am I going to adjust my curriculum to provide that practical experience? And so I think that in community colleges, it does allow professors to really hone their craft as teachers and communicators where there's no incentive to do that. Or I shouldn't say no, but there's very little incentive to do that in an R1 or a four year institution because that's not where the focus is. And and so therefore you end up really, really pretty crappy communicators. Mm -hmm. My son's, (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) my son is at a, you know, four year right now and he's a physics major. And can you imagine trying to learn physics this last you know, he's a senior now, but this last year and a half, you know, with this COVID and online and everything, but some of the teachers, literally professors were literally just saying, you know what, I can't teach this way. And they wouldn't do it. Oh. And, and he was learning wow. nothing, nothing. Wow. And, but then of course <laughs> he's expected without any compassion or you know, to, to jump right into as if he had been learning. Right. half. ridiculous.
2: Bill I am sorry. I think that Bill's you know, obviously totally right in terms of the focus between the two being totally different.
1: But
4: and yeah, and I I don't I yeah. I know what you're saying about some instructors not having any kind of incentive, but I was fortunate to have Instructors, I, I mean, I had some old timers that were just kind of like, you know, here's a bunch of paper. I want you to do everything on paper. And then I want you all log you in and you enter it into my computer because they don't even use computers. You know, I know what you're <laughs> talking about, organizing all these pieces of paper and stuff to teach. I've had that before, but I've also had other instructors that were. You know, they would share their notes for sure. And I watched them the way that they gave their lecture to undergrads specifically. But what I'm saying, the difference between being the lead instructor and in R1 is, you know, it all, it's all on you, right? Like, the you know, you just have to grade and do one or two lectures a week or something like that if you're the TA, if you're even lucky, oh. if you're in a class where they let you have a section where you're, you know, right. actually presenting the materials. But if you're the lead instructor, you're doing all the design and trying to make it As interesting as possible, and you are responsible for the whole class. So that's what I'm saying. But the the biggest thing is that they do recruit us for our research and our other stuff, rather than you know being instructors than the teaching Yeah,
3: the thing I would add, and this is something that my mother was an educator and like she worked at at a you know a college of education, had a background in education, and she always said it, it puzzled her, and I echo this that for K through 12 education, you have to get a license and you have to demonstrate pedagogy. Like you have to demonstrate understanding yes. how to develop a lesson plan and curriculum, mm-hmm. but for higher education, Oh, you have Nothing. a graduate degree. You clearly know what you're doing. It's like, no, that's not the case. And I, and what I love about community colleges is that the support for faculty, at least at Tri C and not to like, you know, praise Tri C too much, but like they offer incentives to continue your education as an educator. Like There are seminars and there are online courses that you can take as a faculty member to learn how to utilize tools, how to properly close caption a video, or like if you create a video, how can you make it accessible? How do you upload video? Like they they make it so easy for you to do a good job as an educator. But the flip side, I think as a student is that you have this stigma, at least in in Ohio, I can't tell you how many times I've had students that say they don't want to end up at a community college college. And I think the stigma behind it is just the perception because it's open enrollment and anyone can take it. I've seen a lot of students that are kind of uh, shy away from community colleges, despite the fact that you'll probably get as good, if not better, yes. general education classes at a community college and for much cheaper than you might get at the same four-year institution. And there's a lot more invested in the students because all they are there for is to make sure students succeed in the courses right. that they are taking. They don't care about these they don't have a like. There's no. I mean, I think we do have a football team at Tri C, but it's not like we're we're you know putting millions of dollars into the football team or into a research laboratory or X Y Z you know fancy building. It's it's all about teaching students the skills they need to succeed, and that's that's the focus that I really love. But as far as students go, it is completely different. What you expect from a four year college. Just assume the 18 to 22 year old student and Andrew, you might have a similar, different perspective out in California, but 18 to 22 year old student, not usually the student I get. Usually they're either in high school or they are 22 plus and they're taking a couple of jobs or they're a single parent or they are, you know, changing careers. And so pretty much any non-traditional student you can think of, which in this case is not 18 to 22 and is usually working, is going to be at a community college. So the student base is completely different than at a four-year institution. And because of that, you get, I would say, a lot of diversity. Having taught at a traditional four-year school, Akron, and having many colleagues in, you know, there's numerous universities in Northeast Ohio, the kinds of students you get at a four-year school are just not the same. And because of that, you learn how to teach I think you get better at teaching at a community Mm. college than you would at a four year school because you're challenged in different ways.
2: Yeah, I would I would totally agree on several fronts like my uh, student body is very similar to yours, although I do get the 18 to 22 bracket, too. I kind of get all of them, you know, and then also what you're saying about the stigma of it, because I'm telling you, if you just look at what what we do at the two year level community college and you just compare it flatly to the first two years at a four year university. I think we just destroy them. We're that much yes. better. Like, I yes. feel like, I feel oh, like I
4: just in, yeah, in terms of,
1: <laughs> sorry, <I was> <laughs> I'm sorry. sorry no. two years.
4: we don't have a football team. We just have a debate team and we just crush people on podcasts. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: The first Keep two years right. I'm saying it's not four years, but the first two years, like I, I'll take the Pepsi challenge with any local four year and ask my students who've transferred
1: Yeah. I I agree. I mean, well, I came from, I'm a returning student, Eric. I'm actually one of those that I was switching careers. So I had another completely different career. I switched careers. I was not only, I kind of check all your boxes. I was a single parent. I was changing careers and I went through Andrew in the beginning of his stint at Park. Like I was there in one of his first few years. And absolutely. I mean, I, I go into, to the four-year institution I went to afterwards. It's, I mean, so much less helpful. You learn theory, but as right. far as being able to get mm-hmm. a job, it, it was very, very different. The the, the the classes were geared towards practical understanding, putting putting to practice what you're learning. I think one small difference might be between Ohio, although maybe you'll tell me it's different, and California. In California, now quite a few of the municipalities, the Counties and the and the um, cities are now giving free two year community college education if you go straight from high school into community college. And so now you are starting to see that's probably why Andrew has younger students, more younger students than you do because of that. So, you know, it's become where I live you know, all students, as long as they went to school here, they can go to Santa Barbara City College for free for the first two years. And then there's a track that takes them straight into, as long as they do well in those first two years, a guaranteed placement at UCSB, as long as they do well.
4: All right. That's that sounds excellent to someone who's a parent of two kids in the state of California who you know, when I hear the word free in college, I'm like, heck, yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and buy that Tesla now. They don't need that college fund. Let's just go ahead and spend that. But I also want to get onto this Pepsi challenge. So we're going to end this segment here. On the next segment, we'll start talking about how university does prepare folks for a job in archaeology.
0: Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guest located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code CRMARC. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing and core structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode.
4: Okay, welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast 225. And before, in our previous segment, we got a challenge. We got a Pepsi. I'm a Coke drinker too, so it was a Pepsi challenge, and I'm thinking this has got to be pretty bold. And I got a link to a field archaeology certificate Uh, Outline from uh, the University of Akron that actually does look like it's extremely solid. So, Eric, can you tell us a little bit more about this?
3: Yeah, so, well, first off, it probably seems silly to plug uh, another school than the one that I teach at.
4: Well, that's all right. I do it all the time.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But, well, I work, I mean, I have colleagues that are at Akron that, you know, they're on the board of nonprofits that I'm also on, so we're in close contact. And essentially, the University of Akron has this field certificate. I think it was actually created like a decade plus ago. And I think it was in the wake of, and I noticed in Northeast Ohio, at least in the nineties, there was this big push towards job readiness because people were starting to realize like, oh, 99.9% of all of our students will not become professors. So maybe we should train them on the thing that they're actually going to do or get them job readiness and other things. And so the field certificate was like this idea of basically get them CRM ready. And they don't state it as much in the link that I think we're putting in the show notes. But this field certificate is going to be—it's going to be revamped by talking to CRM professionals, like people who work for you know archaeology firms. And the idea behind this certificate is you're taking courses that you could either be in archaeology or really any major and get the certificate. But it's got archaeological theory, archaeological lab methods archaeological field school, and then it's got nine credits of electives, which includes elementary surveying, historical archaeology, geophysical survey, Arc of Ohio, special topics, honors project, GIS, and archaeological geology. But they're going to be revamping this, so that's that might change in the next year or two. But it's this idea of, we've had this at Tri-C, of what kinds of programming and and curriculum can we develop to make sure that students have the skills that they need to succeed? And I'm more of a pragmatist in the sense that I understand I want to get students to be ready for CRM, but I also understand, at least at the community college level, that most of my students are not going to be going into CRM either. But I think that's more of a choice just on their own, not necessarily because of the job market. It's just because there's not a whole lot of people that are Necessarily interested in pursuing that work in in Ohio because it's just a different ballgame here in the Midwest than it is out in say you know California and Utah and Arizona and all that stuff. So the idea behind it is is what courses would we need to get students ready? And I'll I'll say my piece and then I'll let other people talk. You know I'll yield my time. But I think the big problem with it is right now at least with the way we were approaching it at Tri C and at at Akron is we're thinking about it in terms of archaeology classes instead of, well, they need soil science. They need elementary surveying, which was on that certificate. But what else do they need in addition to elementary surveying? Maybe some statistics, maybe understanding project management, technical report writing. That's not in that certificate. Uh, so those are just a few things to get our, our cogs spinning, so to speak.
4: Sure. I'm glad you shared that because uh, it does look like it's you know really oriented definitely towards field archaeology, field tech, But I, you know, I think if you finish this certificate, you'd be in excellent shape for going on to a four year school somewhere else or graduate school or, you know, it seems like these classes, if you take them and you do well in them, they're transferable to other archaeology programs in the United States. But you said something about the conditions being different there in the Midwest than, you know, elsewhere like California. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that and, you know, how that's behind
3: how this entire program has been set up. I would say, at least from this pr- perspective of what are some of the things that I hear, both as someone who deals with projects, not necessarily as a CRM company, because I'm on a, on a nonprofit that does contract archaeology from time to time, not like as a, as a form of income. Uh, it's called Stewards of Historical Preservation. Uh, and we sometimes get contracts to do, you know, like a reconnaissance survey or phase one, as some people would say. And what I've noticed, both in trying to get students, but also talking to other professionals in the state, is that there really needs to be better education towards project management, because that's not only a useful skill in archaeology, but also if you decide you don't want to continue into archaeology, like understanding how projects start how they're managed, how you write a budget, how you write a technical report, how do you stay on task on a project? I think those are important things that go beyond just archaeology and are just good job readiness yeah. that I think probably is the best selling point for any sort of college or university that's looking to get students prepared. Because so many times I encounter students who they take an English comp class or they take a history class and they learn how to write a history or an English paper, which is like, here's my thesis statement, here's my supporting evidence. And I actually teach them in my peoples and cultures class how to write a research proposal. The hypothesis in the class is, imagine I'm giving you $20,000 to go study this particular group of people. What are you going to do? And they're like, oh, I don't, I've never had to write a paper that way. I don't, I can't even think Mm -hmm. about it. Or, you know, making students take grant writing or technical writing, give them the skills to learn like, hey, you know, we don't make a lot of money in archaeology sometimes. So being able to figure out how to manage money is probably pretty important.
1: I would, I would say def, you're absolutely on the right track. The technical is, you know, for somebody who does hire in CRM, finding people that can write in a technical manner rather than how they were taught to write in university is so important. And right now, you know, being able to throw people out there on a survey or, or doing, you know, subsurface testing, that kind of thing, it, it's a little easier to find those people. It's the people that can then take that information and communicate it in a report is highly lacking right now in CRM. And if anybody is able to do that, you're going to have a guaranteed job. I'll, I'll just tell you that right now, because where people are cranking out work, but then have to go back. There's so few people that can actually write it up that it, it's just absolutely crippling CRM companies right now. And so, you know, the technical writing and truly technical writing, like, Technical writing specifically for CRM is essential. I don't think any, any college program should be without that. Absolutely. The other thing that I see on the Akron program is GIS. GIS, it depends on where you're going to go. And obviously you don't know where you're going to get a job. If you're going to be working for a smaller CRM firm, GIS is great. Honestly, you can't learn GIS in one class. There's no way you're you're not going to remember it. There's no way you have to have at least, I mean, minimum three classes. I went back to get another graduate degree in GIS. The only way that you are going to be able to really learn something and retain it and be able to practice it in CRM is if you have at least three and probably more likely five, a suite of five classes in GIS. And there's a couple archaeology programs, one in particular in California that has that side certificate, GIS certificate that you can take the supplements and actually can be swapped out for some of the electives that are required for your archaeology degree. But for GIS, one is not going to do it at all. And if you're going into a larger company, which right now, at least in California, these larger companies are starting to swallow up the smaller companies left and right. So I think the smaller companies are not going to be that prevalent and so GIS is good to understand if you want to analyze some data and you're getting a little bit more into more analytical work in CRM. If you are a technician, I don't know how helpful uh, GIS is going to be, of course, unless you're working for a smaller CRM. Because a larger CM, they have their own GIS departments. And, you know, I have a, a graduate degree in it. And I'm not even I mean, I'm lucky that I have a GIS license because my company just wants me to focus on archaeology. I very rarely actually do the GIS because they have a department that does that. So but I think that the technical writing, being able also to fill out forms like actual site records, that's that's really important. Being able to one thing that Andrew does better than anyone else is one. one thing. <laughs> That's all I'm giving you, Andrew. That's not is, enough for
4: Pepsi. One thing no.
1: <laughs> is teaching students how to actually create a site map, a true site map, a yeah. good site map that 30 years down the road and somebody takes out the site record is going to be able to relocate the site.
2: Oh, thanks. That that makes me feel good. So while I feel good at that, Eric, I am actually here to crush your dreams. So uh, (laughs) I I have a question from the department chair side of things. I I was looking at your classes and I was listening to you and it sounds awesome. I think your setup is... Really, really good. But I am curious on how many students you would get in reality to fill those. Because a lot of times in community colleges, you can have these great ideas and present them, and then you like offer them, and it's like, oh my God, we have four students. We can't run it.
3: So, what we're trying to do right now, and specifically, you're referring to the spreadsheet I sent around of uh, uh, the associates that we were pitching at Tri C, right? Okay. Well, I'm just clarifying because I don't know if the listeners knew that yet. I I had sent around to all the other co-hosts the a spreadsheet of, of uh, classes that we're going to be offering at Tri-C, and we've been working on an associate's degree. Uh, currently, I think we're shifting gears because the state of Ohio, precisely like you said, they're worried about marketability and can they get classes to run. Mm-hmm. So they're shifting more towards an associate's of arts with like you can concentrate in different things. And so that kind of gives mm-hmm. us a little bit more freedom to mix and match courses that we already know will fill. So I didn't really talk about in this development phase, which was back in 2019, how I was going to fill them. But looking back on it with two ish years of, of hindsight, you know, maybe developing a North American prehistory class or integrating history yeah. courses into like dual. Oh, why am I blanking on it? You can so count dual enrollment, under, Yeah. Not, a, not dual enrollment, no. but you can count them under different categories, whether yes. that's a humanity or a social science credit, because right. I, Uh, One of the things that's frustrated me, and I don't think I'll get in trouble because I've already said this many a time to people at Tri-C, is I wish I could teach history of Native North America, but that's a history course and not an anthropology course. And because I don't have a graduate degree in history, they're like, you can't teach it. And so, like, courses like that that we know will fill, I would love to see more students taking. But, you know, like an intro to CRM course, I think, is integral. But, yeah, I don't think there'd be a whole lot of students who take it, even at a traditional four-year school you right. struggle to have students taking it. You know, Ursuline College has another historic preservation program and they also offer intro to they're they're also in Northeast Ohio. Mm-hmm. And they offer an intro to like CRM kind of course, which I think is super important. But yeah, it, it's it's really hard to argue from an administrative standpoint to run a class when you know you're going to barely get 12 students in it. Right. But but you can you, there, there are ways to, you know,
2: get more students in that like like you were saying with your peoples and cultures class where you kind of sneaky in a research design. Yeah. I, I've I've done stuff like that and I find that works really, really well. So you can you can look a little more broadly and also you can offer Native North America through anthropology, but you have to have a class in the anthro department. But right. you can totally do that. That's that's fair. Oh, you know?
3: I, yeah, I, I know. And I think the issue has just been developing curriculum and it's like getting classes to run like they don't it's it's just hard right now especially during the pandemic to propose a new class and yeah. like the administration's like mm, let's just worry about retention and not trying to make new classes at right. this moment but you can twist it though
2: to be like hey during these pandemic times what if we have this class to help
4: see it's it's all in the speak Doug, i believe you've been waiting for a little while i think you have something to tell us
5: all looking at again the, the sort of schedule of of what sort of courses would be on this on this degree, and I was wondering why you guys are doing so much, well, okay, so I say so much, it's two, it looks like two courses or two classes on probability and statistics. I I know there's there's always a big push in archaeology to, you know, do, you know, thanks to like new archaeology and all that stuff and processualists and whatnot, uh, a massive push for archaeologists to know a lot of statistics. But you you, kind of like, once you get into the basic theories of statistics, you're like, well, actually most of what you do in statistics and archaeology, you can't do because it violates all the, you know, assumptions that you need. So it was just wondering, is that based on sort of a part of the sort of more general mixing and sort of arts general stuff? Or is this, you know, feedback you got from CRM companies that said, oh, they need to have statistics
3: I was the one who was really pushing statistics just in my experience, having had student like interns and getting students to work on projects. And obviously, I have a slightly different perspective because I'm not in the same kind of hustle as a CRM company might be to get projects done under the same time constraints or under the same conditions. I guess the reason I picked stats is because in the gen ed program, like of an associate's degree, you have to take a math class. And I'm like, well, if they're going to take a math class. Most students end up just taking algebra because they're like, well, I have to take a math class. I'm like, well, might as well take statistics. And really the two stats courses at Tri-C, the second probability statistics, you barely get into things like linear regression and like chi-squared. Like I think you might learn that in the first course, but they basically just go over descriptive statistics in the first semester. And then you use that to build a foundation for like linear regression, chi-squared, T-tests, ANOVA. And so it's not like we're talking about really, really advanced statistics here but i think it's important that if they're going to take a math class it might as well be a math that they can use specifically for archaeology or and also keep in mind it's like when i put this this sort of curriculum together it was not just thinking about how to get archaeologists into the field but also just a general good i guess you could say liberal arts education of like well what's the most most ubiquitously useful math for these students and i figured stats over say algebra i thought maybe trigonometry but i mean these this day and age uh, unless you're me and you you torture students by making them do trig in the field (laughs) because i make them use an old uh auto level for some of the coordinate data which i know isn't as accurate but i also like to make students learn how surveying works so then when they have their phone in their hand and they press the you know pinpoint location they actually can appreciate like all the complexities of the math that go into that. So then they, they don't just take it for granted. I can just press a button and get a pinpoint location.
2: Right. I tell them to take statistics for the exact same reason because they have to take a math and it's like, dude, just take statistics.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that everyone's on the same page that, you know, taking the courses that you'll be able to use later in the work, you know, in the workforce is what's what we're really trying to do. So we're going to end the segment here and we're going to turn it over to the next segment. And in the next segment, I want to talk about the future, preparing folks to do archaeology in the future.
0: You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun T-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public Store. Head over to arcpodnet.com shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com shop to pick up some fun swag and support the
4: show. All right. Welcome back to our final segment here, episode 225 of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. So in our previous segment we ended with a kind of universal agreement that college should contribute to your life after you graduate which is actually <laughs> not uh, it's not always what many professors are thinking of when they're doing their job uh, in this final segment I kind of want to talk about the classes that we're teaching and the kind of things that we're preparing students to do in the future you know how is the education that we're getting preparing students in the future and so we have this great, a list of classes for a field archaeology certificate at the uh, University of Akron that we've been talking about. And we're kind of trying to discuss teaching the kind of classes that students will need. But some of the things that, you know, we mentioned, maybe it would be nice for them to learn about Native American history. But I, you know, looking at that list, I, I'm seeing a kind of list of things that would be great for someone to learn how to just, you know, excavate a, sh- a shovel probe. But I don't see how you, these are the kind of things, that, especially in the West with So much collaboration between Native groups and actually legislated collaboration with Native people. I don't really see how this is going to prepare folks to communicate with people from a a different worldview. And then the other huge thing in archaeology is the fact that, yeah, we're, we're short on people to do cultural resources right now. But as someone who's working in a university, we're looking... You know, students who are coming ahead and there's actually we've talked about this before recently that there's a smaller cohort of people in that 18 to 20 year old range that are even going into college. And as we look at anthropology in general, people are really interested in anthropology and interested in, you know, what people are figuring out from archaeological sites, but we don't really see that interest transferring into more anthropology majors. So the pipeline is kind of like, you know, looking a little bit like Lake Mead right now, starting to get lower and lower. And we're kind of looking ahead, like, is this drought going to continue? And like, what's that going to do to our entire future? So with all that stuff in mind, you know, let's go back to talking about these classes and, you know, how do you all see training the next generation of students?
1: You know, I, I would say, just to kind of roll in from the last conversation we had in the, in the previous segment, you know, as far as statistics go, they're essential and I think it's a really good microcosm of, you know, understanding how learning the way that Eric is setting this up and the way Andrew's classes are, which is, is awesome in preparing people to go into CRM. But I think there needs to be like a practical side of things. So Statistics is really great to learn, and I think it's essential because there's so so many people are coming into CRM that don't have that knowledge. And from a management perspective, for me, um, I know how to use Excel. I know how to you know work with statistics within Excel. You'd be surprised at how few people actually know how to use Excel and all the wonderful tools that are in Excel to you know crunch the numbers and figure out what it is that we did take what what did we recover right from the ground so the statistics i think is really important what i would like to see or I think would be great, would be, and I don't know if you know you really can do this in community college. I think you can do this to some degree in community college, but I think the four-year institutions really need to focus on this. They have, we're going to teach you this, and then we're going to put it to practice. So we're going to teach you statistics, and then we're going to give you a data set. And we're going to actually really, now I know a lot of classes, they say they do that, but don't, they don't, because I'm telling you, people are coming into CRM, have no idea how to use an Excel spreadsheet. They don't know how to crunch the data. They don't know how to get the you know, the results from it. And then that puts a bind on me because then I have to do it or somebody else that would be better served doing other things like bringing in more work, like writing proposals, managing and working with the clients you know, obviously I love doing archaeology, but I can't do everything. Right. So we need those people trained to be able to, to work in a practical manner. And so you have that as far as GIS goes, we've kind of covered that. But I mean, the one thing I love, love, love to see the geology and archaeology, but actually taking, yes, we're going to explain geology, but we're going to explain geology and how are we going to, how are you going to use that in CRM? Well, first of all, I need people that can look up the soils and can tell me the natural environment Every technical report should have natural environment section in it where you're explaining everything about that natural environment and why archaeological deposits could be buried and where and what level they could be buried. And what's the potential of, you know, that when we're doing a recognizance survey, are we truly looking at the native soils or are we more than likely looking at fill soils or alluvial soils on top of where, you know, archaeological deposits could be beneath. So these are all like examples where what they're learning needs to be put into how is that even going to help me in CRM and how am I going to help my employer and and show that I'm valuable?
2: Right. I think that analyzing a data set like that, you know, with those kind of statistics really is kind of an upper division thing. And that's a place where the four year could really add, yeah. you
3: know? Yeah. Yeah. I think the tricky thing, as Andrew has pointed out, is like not to put on the like administrator cap or anything is, with the courses that I was putting together when I was starting to develop an associate's degree in anthropology slash archaeology, it's that I saw all of these courses as useful, but I, as an archaeologist, couldn't be the one teaching the course. Like I think it's important that they have a course in, like we have one at C called Computer Applications, where they learn basics of like Microsoft Excel. But I'm not the one teaching it, so I don't get to be like, okay, here's your sample data, and it's going to be an actual like archaeological site or a collection. And so the workaround that I've tried to do to incorporate those useful field experiences like, you know, learning statistics, but in a meaningful way that actually gets people to understand it is like I said in the last segment, I make students use dumpy level or an auto level, whatever you want to call it. Not because I'm, well, partially one, because Tri-C is not exactly you know an R1 school. We don't have a big budget. We cannot afford a total station. So let's get that out, out of the way right now. But also it's a great learning opportunity for students to apply math skills that they otherwise weren't getting. I can't tell you how many times in the past summer field school, I had students saying, I really want to be on the survey team today because I really love doing the math and I love doing the survey. Like, it's just so fun. I never learned this when I took Trig when I was in high school. And then the other thing is, that I try to do in the field school class is teaching them from start to finish a project. So a lot of archaeology field methods courses, like, you know, I'm not trying to bash Akron or Kent or any of these other schools, but at a four-year school, usually a field school is, here's a site, we're going to dig here for three weeks. And you don't learn like, okay, how did you find this site? Like, is this a hypothetical scenario where like Metro Parks is coming in and doing something or... You know, are they building an on-ramp for a highway and that's why you're doing this? And then watching this from start to finish. And so what I try to do is the Ohio Archaeology Inventory has a 10-page form for their sites, which is frankly a, quite a large site form. Uh, and it includes all these things like soil associations and whatnot. And so what I've had them do in the past is it's basically their final exam. I give them a 10-page form and I say, fill out all of these sections of it. And I basically have the answer key because I also have to fill out the the site form. And, you know, it includes things like archaeological significance. Is this site eligible for the National Register? Where is the nearest water source? So they not only have to learn all of the things that they've been doing in the field, but then they need to understand, OK, here's what they want to know on the form. Can you fill it out?
1: That's I love that. That That's awesome. And does something like that, too. I think that's great.
2: Yeah. 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 I I just have them fill out the standard DPR forms. I just put more part college on the top. And these are, these are the state forms because I want the students to get, you know, prepared for
4: filling stuff out at the state level. Doug, I believe you've been waiting. You have a comment here.
5: Yeah, it was, uh, I guess slightly going back to the courses and the, um, and the sort of level of what things are aimed at. So my earlier comment was mainly, Thinking about it, I don't know, I guess it was slightly back to Heather and a bit on what you mean by stats, I'm, I'm getting that from the courses you guys do in your very, very intro stuff. Uh, I think I was coming from it from the the idea that, you know, like, I don't think there's like a single master's course in uh, archaeology that somehow doesn't have like advanced stats. Whereas what we're talking about here seems to be a much, much more of your introductory entry level sort of thing, uh, which to me makes sense. And it sounds like a lot of the stuff is a very intro level. So if it's trig, you know, you're just, you know, with a dumpy level or, uh, what's transect. Is it no transact? Uh, what's the one where you can, where transit. you need transit. There we go. Uh, it's, sorry. It's been so long since I, I mean, <laughs> I, I used to transit under my, at my field school and yeah, it's, it was, it was handy to know, the geometry for a dumpy level and trig for a transit. And yeah, at the same level, we're still, you know, we encourage a lot of people over here in the UK to learn those basics so that you understand that when you get a total station, that laser is pointing out there and you understand it really does help if you know the basics to be able to catch mistakes. So you can kind of suddenly understand why you're getting a reading that. You know, seems off if you know the geometry or the trigon- trigonometry behind it, I think that's invaluable in the field because it catches a, it helps you catch a lot of errors and stuff. Uh, unfortunately though, like over here, it's now moved almost entirely to uh, GNS or GPS now like uh you know companies are like oh yeah total station yeah yeah we don't really use those anymore mm-hmm. do you guys do you guys want want to have one like like they're almost yeah. giving them away for free I'll take because less. yeah like um yeah. And, and and that makes sense in a in a country over here where you know you can get sub like millimeter accuracy yeah. sort of stuff and, and i know you know some places out west in the us you're you're lucky if you get like that whole within five meters for yeah. your, your site datum yeah. sort of thing, so it doesn't quite work. But uh, yeah, I, I, I get that. And so um, I guess my question was slightly a, a pushback on. Sorry, that was a really long way of. I just rambled for a few minutes there. Sorry, guys. Um, it, it was it was mainly just to say, um, yeah, I, I totally understand getting the basics and stuff. But uh, it was a sort of question for Heather. What are you looking at when you say? Because you mentioned like Excel and stuff, and I wouldn't mm-hmm. call that necessarily stats. It just, no, it's yeah, true. I,
1: it's true. I'm I'm talking about, and again, you know, I did preface that saying that it might be something that would be better covered in a, a for your institution or for your course. But what it's fine for people. Yeah, you know, I think stats is important. You know, I took several classes in it myself. But I think it depends on what it is that you're trying to prepare students for. I really, I don't think you need to be a master of statistics to be able to know how an Excel spreadsheet works, pivot tables, to actually really be able to work and crank out the data, get the data in, and then make something of it. You don't have to understand the statistics behind it. But I think statistics is really important to understand. But for me as an employer, that's what I need. I need people that can actually use an Excel spreadsheet. I can give them the data that we're, that's coming out of the field and they can work it rather than me having to do everything. So because nobody else knows how to do it. So that is my one example of being able to use something like statistics and use it in a practical way and making sure that the university is preparing the students for that. The other thing is also, just like Eric had said, I mean, as far as you know, filling out the forms, understanding what does make sites eligible and taking that further. And this is probably more of a four year because it'd be very difficult to teach all this in a two year, but regulatory understanding is essential. Like, nobody's coming out of colleges understand anything because the professors don't know it. They don't know the regulatory underpinnings behind why CRM does what they do. It's very different than academic academia. And it trickles down to everything that we do from a CRM perspective. So understanding the regulatory side of things is absolutely essential. It is a must. It's more important than so many other things.
4: Yeah. I mean, I what, what I hear here is not people really preparing for the future. I just hear folks talking about how we can make more people that are like us or even more generic because uh, some of the things that I'm like hearing is that we need to learn all these basic processual techniques and stuff, and this is the same thing that has gotten us in the same problem that we're already in, where a lot of communities are not very interested whatsoever in archaeology because it is people taking measurements and digging up things and not really connecting it to human beings. And so I was looking at some of the other things here with Akron University and with their undergrad anthropology program, you have several basic classes that have to be taken, but you go far down to some kind of thing called the cultural set before you even learn about Native Americans. And I can guarantee you that that is a huge component of what folks are looking at and considering uh, historical or eligible for the National Register, but it doesn't even really seem like you know, any of the programs we're talking about are, you know, trying to prepare people for even thinking about cultures because. We can fill out the forms, and we can go through the rubric of Section 106 or CEQA or something like that. But actually, explaining the significance in, in the kind of terms that some tribes not going to sue us later on, or some you know African American community is not going to refute those things and have some kind of huge hearing at the city hall. Like that's the thing that we're that we're up against right now. And then even moving forward into the future, the as we look at the data. The anthropology students, the demographics that are going down are people of European ancestry, which are like 90% of the archaeologists today. It's not African-American or Native American that are stopping doing anthropology. It's white kids. They don't want to do anthropology anymore. And so if we don't look at these other groups and these other entire universes of humans that we've never even thought about connecting to anthropology, we're going to end up in the situation where we're driving in front of Home Depot to try and find field techs and somehow that's OK, because we don't have anyone who's coming out of university that wants to do it.
1: I agree to you to some with you to some extent. The understanding, I think there has to be an overarching underpinning of an entire program that is geared towards what you're saying, Bill. But as far as working with tribes, as far as understanding the stakeholders and their perspective and working with them in a meaningful way, that comes from working in the CRM for uh, field. Now, obviously, there needs to be an an underpinning of it, and that needs to be focused on in in these programs. But as far as the CRM professional goes, I don't put anyone other than I do have, we do train our our techs to uh, communicate properly in the field with stakeholders like tribal groups. But as far as working with them, that's so complex. Nobody should be working in that arena Until they've been in CRM for a while. True, but
4: actually understanding the prehistory of your area, like that's not even actually a requirement of a lot of these things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm just saying as far as interacting and understanding. So the regulatory side of things, I really, let's just start somewhere. Let's get them understanding. There are some programs that don't even talk about the regulatory side of things and they have no idea why CRM does what they do. Compared to why academia does what they do, and so that's somewhere to start with. Yeah, and then I, I in CRM, you. while you are working in CRM, then 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 you can get a better understanding, and that's where that's where CRM companies need to step up and need to be training also.
2: Right. I see, it seems to me like it, what we need is just balance. You know, you need those sort of two pronged approach, which is which is which is what I always try and do, because you have that very technical CRM side of like the making the map or whatever. But you also have to I don't find anything wrong with, you know, recommending taking Egyptology or the ancient Maya or whatever. And, and so I do those two in order to, where you have the very technical, but then also the very like exciting and stuff the general public wants to hear about and stuff that everyone just likes and goes, wow, that's cool
3: yeah i think to to doug and heather's point about like how do you cram this into a two-year program like an associate's degree and i think one of the ways it's something that Andrew and i've talked about is is uh sort of sneaking in these sorts of projects or real world experience in classes that we have control over and i think one of the big things that i've been trying to pivot for here at tri-c is we have these classes that already exist and i'm already teaching and i'm like well this class, like, we don't know what to do with it. So what are we going to do to make it job readiness? Like, for example, peoples and cultures in the world. It's this weird, it's it's a 2000 level class. So you have to take intro to cultural anthropology. And so in my mind, I'm like, well, I'm an archeologist and an anthropologist. So I want them to learn about indigenous cultures because I feel like they're going to probably not learn a whole lot about it if they go to a four-year school. Or if they do, it's going to be a very broad overview of things. And to Heather's point of like, learning how, like, you know, don't, don't send them out and and start consulting with tribes. I do think it's important though, for them to start interacting with other people, whether or not that's tribes. I don't, I think that's, that's ambitious, but I, I literally tell them you're going to, you're going to start doing research on a group and you're, you have a hypothetical proposal that you're going to have to write at the end of the semester. And I encourage you, these are living people that you're going to be doing research on potentially. So we're not going to actually do the research, but start talking to people, like start engaging in communities and understanding their perspective. And I think that sometimes gets lost in translation. I think I'm kind of meandering away from where we were starting with this, but all to bring it back to, I think the issue right now with four-year institutions is that they teach them archaeology without any particular focus in the sense that, like I was saying before with field schools, you know, you're teaching them technical skills, but then not teaching them why these technical skills are useful. And it gets back to Doug's comment about, uh, you know, in the UK, they're switching over to GPS. I didn't understand how like mapping really worked until I was in grad school, because at that point, I'd just been given a Trimble and pressing a button. And so I took it on myself to start learning how to do this stuff, because to make an analogy of it, when I was in photography classes at, at Akron, because that's where I went in my undergrad, they wouldn't even let you touch digital photography until you did film, because they're like, you have to understand how photography works from a fundamental process of like the physics behind it before you can start doing digital photography because you're not going to be able to problem solve and troubleshoot in the same way. And so I think that's where we have an opportunity in these two years institution is to sort of have low risk projects that students can work on where it's like, well, you know, you're sending an email or making a phone call to a local historical society or a a stakeholder in this project that we're working on very low stakes because it's not 106 it's not a national register site it's 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 just a site that we happen to pick for this class and so it allows them the opportunity to make mistakes and learn from them without you know having to consult with the tribe who could turn around and say hey we're going to sue tri-c because you you totally guffed up this project
4: yeah that's wise doug i believe you have a comment
5: yeah, it was it was to sort of tie it all together to say I think Eric had actually put it into the comments, which was what Heather I think you're talking about is a little less about stats and more about like data analytics and I think that ties into uh, sort of the course and everything that's been put out there is that it's intro and, and so like I, I was questioning just from the title based off of you know stats too and all this sort of stuff but it sounds like it's actually probably at the right sort of Introductory level of what people would want on the basics, and then in back to a bit of what Eric was saying on you know uh, trying to cover a bit of practical things that people will actually use. I think that is is a very useful and probably. I mean, my personal experience is actually the community col- college focus and mission is what all universities should actually be as opposed to the other way around where we look down on it. I actually think community college is closest to what we actually want in our education system. And also just to say that, you know, at that basic level and skills, that's university. I'm, I know some people spend decades of their lives uh, still still learning in university and whatnot, but, you know, two, four years, five years, Uh, six years, you know, there's there's a certain limit to how much you can learn before you go out into the job. And then you start to specialize and learning doesn't sort of stop there as well. And I know we're talking about, and this is the last comment, which is just sort of off the, (laughs) off of, of, of Bill's thing is honestly like, I, like, so I'm slightly torn in that, throughout this entire conversation, I've just been thinking, yes, this is what education should be like. Um, this is how we should train people and it should prepare them for a job, not necessarily a job in CRM. And then flipping that back to say like, I know Bill, you're, you're worried like, oh, there's not going to be enough people and whatnot, but like, and, and this is, this is pretty <laughs> much CRM everywhere. Um, you know, it's commercial here. It's like, honestly, that's not the problem of universities and that's, that's, you know, supply and demand. Like if we start to run out of archaeologists, uh, companies need to raise their rates and they need to have conversations with their oh, clients yeah. saying, "Yeah, you know what, if you want this done in this time frame, it's going to cost you extra. And guaranteed 90% of the clients, and actually this is probably going to be even higher in, in the United States because, you know, most of it is through federal or state and uh, anything like that is – yeah, their their thing is about getting things done, not necessarily the cheapest way of doing it. Even though that's what most archaeologists think about, is that we need to be the cheapest, and that's how we win. And that is how we win. That's that's how the system's set up. But you know, part of that is definitely you know raise your rates and whatnot. And so I'm slightly, uh, slightly torn on that. I think the conversation we've had is all about how. Education. This is how education should be. This is how we should be teaching. And slightly on to the CRM people, like, you know, maybe we should be te- treating archaeologists better so they stay longer and we don't have to uh, rely on turning over a new batch of field techs every six months or year or whatnot. I, that's a whole different conversation. Yeah, Obviously, we've gone way yeah. way, yeah. way, way overboard. Know, not, but I have I can, a
1: lot to say about that. Um, Chris, yeah. Is,
5: yeah. Chris yeah. is probably
4: yeah. right now, you know, smashing his <laughs> amazing you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. I I headphones against that. the thing.
3: Like, why are these guys going?
4: But Eric, Eric's <laughs> going to take us out, though.
3: Yeah, I think to succinctly feed off of Doug when you're saying it, it's it's both on education and on the CRM firms, I think if we had established a clear-cut trajectory and what the expectations are of you know technical skill at the associates level this is this is where i envision the education going you become a i don't know if shovel bum is still a term that we're allowed to use anymore but you become a shovel bum with an associates degree or you you learn technical skills you become a project manager or a crew chief with a bachelor's degree you become a principal investigator which i guess arguably is you know i i see that as slightly higher you know rank than a project director or a crew chief at a master's level. And then the PhD would be like the researcher or professor or the sort of academic type. So then you have this chain of command. So then I think the problem is that a lot of people, especially, at, I mean, I don't mean to speak, speak for other SHPO's, but like A lot of the professionals in the Ohio region have this sort of mentality of like, well, I had to, you know, cut my teeth on getting a Ph.D. and struggling. And so, you know, this student who has an associate's degree, they can't possibly be qualified or the student who has a bachelor's degree. You know, good luck. Go get a master's degree. Like you're not qualified to do any of this stuff yet. So I think we need to change the mentality and the culture towards. You have an associate's degree in anthropology, you're qualified to dig holes. You have a bachelor's degree, you're qualified to supervise the people who dig holes. You have a master's degree, you're qualified to, to lead the project, so to speak, from start to finish. So I, I think if we start to think of things in that trajectory, we might be able to shift towards solving some of these problems. Yeah, Eric,
2: I love the way that you just illustrated that. That's exactly how I wish it was. And it would just be nice if we all agreed on that. You know what I mean? If we knew, sort of, in the United States, oh, this is how archaeology is taught at each level, this is what you get. But it's just all over the place. Yeah. It's
1: not going to happen in just like Andrew said, everybody's got to agree. And as from a CRM perspective, you know, I have people that, you know, come in with a master's. There's no way. I would ever put them in a management position, but they come out thinking yeah. that they're, they're ready for that, you know, and, I, and there are people that don't even have a bachelor's that I would put them, you know, way up just because of their experience, level, and their ability, I would easily put them in a management position because they have the skill set to make that happen. And so, you know, just like you guys, both Eric and, and Andrew are saying, we have to come together with some kind of, you know, Some basic framework approach yeah. <laughs> because this is well, not, it's not working. You, can, I'm going to decide when I'm hiring somebody what their skill set is because one person's somebody coming out of Moorpark with an associates is going to be far more prepared than somebody actually even coming out of you know a four an R one university with a bachelor's. Yeah,
2: with sometimes. no field school.
5: Right. I'm not right. even or sure is three a, weeks. a, a hierarchy so works hard. for this though. Like I honestly think, honestly, what we should be doing is sending like, after you've gotten a, a couple of years of experience and you want to go on to say management, we should actually be sending people back to community college to get an associates in project management. But I, I think that's that. so much more, yeah. um, so much more you know, valuable. Yeah. Like, like we have this hierarchy that somehow yes. a master's is better, but honestly, We should just be giving people associate's degrees every couple of years. And I think that would be such a better way of teaching and going about how we train and how we reward training. Because like imagine after five years of practical experience, you have, you can dig a hole, you know, everything, you know, you know, the geometry of, you know, why, uh, uh, why a one-by-one one needs to be perfect and a right triangle, all this stuff. But you absolutely have no skills about, like, dealing with people or dealing with managing projects or budgets and stuff. And honestly, it would it'd be amazing, um, we'd have to get rid of, you know, Secretary of Interior stuff, but it would be amazing if you could just be <laughs> like, actually, just go back and get a two-year associate's sure. in uh, how to manage people and you could now become a project manager or a PI yeah. or something. It would attract the
1: right people too. Mm-hmm. <coughs> How many people do you have in your class that are i span archaeo- archaeologists full of weirdos who yeah. actually in some sense hate business? They well, hate the, business. Yeah, yeah. And and if we could get if we started going out and really recruiting people from the business side uh archaeology would be so much better off i don't know about any
4: of that stuff i definitely do not agree that getting a whole bunch of people from the business side if you've if you've ever looked at our world right now and you know coughed up the smoke that's been caused of the business side and what they've been doing to the entire world i don't know if we really want to have a whole bunch of those folks running crm companies i I do agree that some practical business Yes. Experience or education should happen if you're going to be running projects or moving to the highest level. But okay, another man. thing too that needs to happen at a certain point is I have to turn off the podcast because I think our, <laughs> yeah. our yeah. host oh. is going to, you know, Explode with rage when he sees that we've gone into extra innings.
1: And the thing is,
4: right now, that everyone on this podcast thinks it's funny, and that's why they're keeping it going. But we have enough material for a whole nother episode. And so I'll put that out there. We never even got to the Pepsi Challenge. I'll put it out there. Eric, will you come back? Are you interested in coming yes, back on the show? Yes, I
5: will do the Pepsi challenge. All right, because we hey. got to
4: stop at 2.25 at a certain point in time, and I think that time is right now.
5: So, Bill, what you're going to end us on is archaeology needs less archaeologists.
4: That's no, what we all agree I'm on, right? End, what I'm going to end it on is the iconic words of the, the host that says, thanks for everyone for tuning in with me this week. <laughs> thanks also to the listeners for tuning in. We'll see you in the field. Doug, goodbye. <laughs>
1: he's on mute. <laughs> he's not
4: answer. Uh oh. Ten minutes. Okay. Nine. Eight,
1: seven, six,
5: oh my! Five.
1: cue
5: oh, yes. Doug. Goodbye, everyone.
1: <laughs>
5: <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.
2: Goodbye.
0: That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.arcpodnet. .com slash Arc podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye.